welcome to the latest episode of At The Flicks. Yes, the three old-timers are back with our eclectic mix of news, reviews and rambling discussions on everything movie-related. Hello, my name is Jeff and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Recently, I've been re-watching Watchmen and really enjoying the political sections where they ban superheroes. Now that's what I call wish fulfilment. Hello, and my name is Graham, and I'll ignore that cheap shot from Jeff and proudly say that I'm, on this podcast, I cover science fiction and comic books. This means I get to review movies I'm genuinely interested in, and in the process, constantly annoy Jeff. It's a win-win for me. And my name is Neil, and I'm trying to watch as many films as I can the other two haven't even heard of, let alone seen. Right, uh, a bit of breaking news before we go on with the show. Great news, everyone. I have the latest download stats for this podcast, and we have gone from one to two listeners. Wow. The pressure's now on, guys. With that in mind, and before we play it again, Jeff, can you give us the answer to last month's quiz, which, by the way, I think half of our audience have already guessed. That is great news, Graham, and a warning on me to raise the bar for future questions. If I make it too easy, even Neil will start guessing them. OK, at the end of last month's show, the question, which related to the classic Oscar-winning movie Casablanca was, Humphrey Bogart played the lead character Rick, but what was Rick's surname? The answer, and you're all on bated breath for this one, is Blaine. No, Graham. Not Bane, the Batman character. That's Blaine, which is mentioned twice in the film. Once when the Nazis review his file, and the other time when referred to as Mr. Blaine by Victor Laszlo. I take it both of you have seen Casablanca? Of course. We'd have to resign our positions on this podcast if we hadn't. Yep, I agree, Neil. It's a true classic all film fans should watch. Speaking of old classics, Neil, can you give us a rundown on what's on offer in this month's classic edition of At The Flicks? This month, our theme is the rather weighty one of what is the future of cinema, with all the new innovations available. Then, our ever-popular movie news, both our listeners seem to like this section. After that, there is a movie review section where we will be giving our views on Ready Player One, A Quiet Place and Isle of Dogs. Finally, assuming anyone is still listening, Jeff will entertain us with another challenging question. I can't wait. Jeff, kick us off with our theme for discussion. What is the future of cinema? Thanks, Neil. And it is so heartening to hear how much you look forward to my questions. Back to the theme. On the last podcast, our listener said we had an interesting discussion about the summer blockbuster season. In the end, we brought our ramblings on this topic to a close, with my view being that creativity has been severely reduced over the years. And both of you guys, of course, disagreed with me. The highlight of all this being Neil's famous attempts to show his math skills falling somewhat short with the films of 1981. All that aside, I'm not one to dwell on the past. (laughs) One very interesting point that we keep coming back to, where is cinema going in the future? Is it still going to be relevant? Try not to go on too long. It's a podcast, not an audio book. Jeff, a fun fact uh, from the world of sci-fi. Trying to predict the future, mm, that's really difficult. In the years leading up to the end of the 20th century, nowhere in popular sci-fi was the PC, the smartphone or the internet predicted. The three biggest technical changes in our lifetime all missed. Lots of flying cars, but no smartphones. So three old-timers sat in the Wild West country... 
talking about the future of the film industry is bound to be spot on. Take it away, Oracle Jeff. Thank you, Obi-Wan. <laughs> Actually, I think we are very spot on. Let's remember, even an old broken clock is right twice a day. Not if the hands have fallen off. Okay. Um, so with that <laughs> philosophy in mind, and, and Graham, thank you for being so relevant there. Let's take that question with the warnings Graham has given us. Does cinema have a future? And if so, what will it look like? Well, in this podcast, we're going to discuss some of the main points which will potentially shape the future of cinema. And then, like geriatric mystic Megs, we will give our best predictions as to where we see cinema and film distribution in a decade's time. But before we get to any of that... It's still only a podcast, Jeff. Thanks, Neil. Said with the subtlety of an Australian ball tamperer. <laughs> Back to the main plot. It is my belief the answer to anything lies in the past. Challenges to the existence of cinema are not new. There have been numerous times in the past where the doomsayers have com- commented with the words, that's it, it's over, yet each time it has survived. Now with the aid of a PowerPoint presentation and wall charts our two listeners cannot see, my fellow two presenters, or glamorous assistants if you prefer, Good job you can't see them, that's all I can say. Will help explain what happened at two key points of the past when people thought cinema would not survive. Now, the first challenge came in the 1950s with the growth of television. Cinema going reached its highest watermark globally in 1946. Following that post-war period, there was the growth of that little cathode ray tube machine in the corner of the living room. Neil might be a bit subtle for you, that's television. As a result, and for the first time in cinema history, attendances were declining year on year. Filmmakers were worried. Neil, using all the charts and complex models in front of you, how did cinema fight back? Probably best you let me handle the complicated stuff, Jeff, as you tried to flowchart it. Bless. Luckily, I did my own homework about this. Did you know in the 1950, more than 10 million American homes had a TV and those people rarely went to the cinema? No wonder they were in a panic. What made it worse is that the 50s were thought of as the first golden age of TV. Live shows and groundbreaking sitcom formats all helped keep those viewing figures high, especially in America. In the mid-50s, RKO became the first studio to sell its back catalogue of films, such as King Kong, to TV, so why go to the movies where you can see films in the comfort of your own home on a mammoth 17-inch screen? So cinema struck back. The first and most obvious was to go big. It was Cinemascope against a 17-inch TV. No contest. Cinema Spectacle became the norm. Films like The Robe and Ben-Hur were released to huge box office numbers. Also, with the relaxing of cinema censorship, there were things cinema could show that couldn't be shown on TV. For example, in 1953, the film The Moon is Blue had one of its stars use the word, wait for it, virgin for the first time how, are we allowed how, to get away with that on the podcast well, yeah. language powerful stuff I think both of our listeners are over 18 so we should be okay um, then there was the rise of the anti-hero stars like Marlon Brando and James Dean none of this would have been allowed on TV and indeed Brando's The Wild One was banned in the UK for a number of years and the knife fight in Rebel Without a Cause was heavily censored finally there were the gimmicks the introduction of 3D and something Jeff enjoyed the introduction of the cheap trip in horror movies such as Skeleton on Wires for the House on the Haunted Hill in 1958. William Castle, the man behind many of these gimmicks, a true cinematic genius. Who can forget those cinema seats wired to give electric shocks with a tingler? What? Hang on. 
he wired the seats up. He did. To, so what, they to were the ra- mains? They were random seats to give. It was almost like an electric buzz shock. Oh, right. So, you know, like... You, you, it's not you, everyone. Yeah, so so <laughs> random seats had this electric shock, and it, when the tingler appeared on screen, they said, oh, oh, watch out for it. And, of course, they set some of these buzzers off. What they didn't figure is some of the, the patrons in the cinema were so frightened, they started peeing in the seats. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have added a whole new dimension to the electric chair scene in the Green Mile. Or the orgasmatron in Woody Allen's sleeper. Oh, I'm not sure about the orgasmatron, Graham. <laughs> well, if uh, we... No, let's not no, go there. Let's, let's not... Anyway, despite all this, the result was an annual drop in the UK of audiences from 1.2 billion in 1950 to just 400 million by 1960. What those figures don't show is the decline was trailing off throughout the initial sharp fall to a more modest decline by the end of the decade. Cinema survived and learnt to live with the threat of TV. Indeed, Hammer Films had a policy to make successful TV series into feature films for the cinema, something that was proved very lucrative for many years, showing for the first time how TV and cinema can work together. And by the way, do you know what the most successful film in Britain was in 1971 in cinemas? No. The film version of On the Buses, funded by Hammer. Please cut that. Oh, Anyway, a a real high point for British cinema. I I, I do have a copy if anybody wants to watch it. Please cut that. (laughs) Thanks, Neil. Um, And there was definitely a clear improvement on your math skills there. You can thank me later. Graham, any comment? Yeah, just a few observations. The the numbers are staggering. Absolutely staggering. I mean, 1.2 billion people in a country of about, what, must have been 40 million in the 50s, 45. I know there were loads more more cinemas but back in the 50s, but I've forgotten how large they were. Uh, we're used to sitting in our little small multiplex cinemas that hold a couple of hundred people at most. And occasionally we travel to London's Leicester Square that has a capacity of about 1,700 seats. However, doing some research for this, the cinemas in the 50s were fast. There were, you know, there was the Odeon in Hammersmith, and I've been there, at 3,500 seats. And there were 20 other cinemas throughout the UK that regularly... Uh, that had over 4,000 seaters. And, and you've got to think at that time as well, those cinemas only showed one film. The multiplex didn't exist. That came in the 70s. So each cinema showed one film. Anyway, thank you both for your um, fascinating insight onto this. I learned something there, and I don't say that often. <laughs> So let's turn to another period, the 1980s and the rise of video. Graham, your turn with the charts. Right, let's put some percentages around these decline in cinema-going numbers. In the 1950s, the high watermark we've said is 1.2 billion. By 1960, attendances had fallen by 66% to 400 million, and then off a cliff in the early 1980s when the numbers in the UK fell to just 54 million. That's a 95, over 95% decline in 30 years. But in the early 80s, we saw the rise of the home video recorder. You could watch TV shows whenever you want, but more importantly, you could rent or buy a blockbuster and watch it in the, the comfort of your own, own home. Most people at that time thought, that's it, cinema's dead this time and films will just be made for video and for the video market. Oh, and you could watch them now on your massive 24-inch TV, up seven inches from the 1950s. However, 
Instead of killing the cinemas, the opposite happened. Uh, Video fed people's appetite for film, much like Neil said about the link between TV and cinema. Part of this was timing. The 80s saw the rise of the sequel, films such as Rocky and uh, the Karate Kid franchise, uh, which were huge video draws. People didn't want to wait the six months for the next instalment to come out on video. They wanted to see it now, and that meant a trip to the cinema. That, coupled with the change in the way films were were shown, and we, we spoke about this earlier, the rise of the multiplex... So there were more films on offer and uh, an end to the double bills. You could just see the film you wanted to see and not have to sit through a boring uh, B picture. As a result, cinema audiences doubled from the 1983 low point by the end of that decade. And in recent years, UK cinema audience have again doubled and we're close to 200 million now. Uh, something that will possibly now start to change thanks to some of the new threats we're going to discuss. Thanks, Ren. That's really interesting. And you see the maths there, Neil. So now we've had the history, just what are these threats which are going to impact your future film watching? Well, getting the most publicity at the moment is the rise and rise of video on demand. Netflix and Amazon being the most prolific, although there are many other companies in the wings, such as Hulu. Uh, For this discussion in the UK, we'll look at the three main companies with their different business models. This is just like listening to a low-rent version of Bloomberg. (laughs) Well, to me, Bloomberg is a visionary, Neil, and he hates Orange Man, so I appreciate that comparison, and I thank you. (laughs) Moving on. The first and most traditional of the companies in the UK is Sky, who essentially have had the same model for 30 plus years. That is, buy the rights to cinema films and screen them six to nine months after cinema distribution, before they air on terrestrial TV. Recently, they've added to that model. They've developed their own mid-budget, up to £40 million for films that they screen on TV at the same time they open in cinemas. This venture, in my opinion, is doomed to fail. You either put the films on without cinema exposure, which we once called direct-to-video, and we mentioned that earlier, Mm -hmm. or you take a chance with the cinema first. It also doesn't help that in the first three that they've released to date, they've all been rubbish, with Monster Family a good contender for the worst film of the year so far. Sky's recent problem is that they used to have access to a vast proportion of films six to months, nine months after the cinema release. With the money available from Sky Box Office, then on to Sky Cinema for subscribers, they're not getting the films now. And as Jeff says, their straight-to-video offerings have just been that straight DVD for a reason. Yeah, I agree. Um, And another Sky problem is that their monopoly on high-quality distribution with their satellite dishes has become irrelevant. The internet's just started to eat their lunch with constant increase in bandwidth for a reasonable cost. Internet-based companies like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon and soon Apple. And actually this morning I just read that Apple have commissioned Isaac Asimov's Foundation series for TV. They're all getting in on it. This is all squeezing Sky's traditional model. Uh, Sky's now responded by offering an internet-only service called Now TV. So now they have two distribution models to support with all the associated costs. And with their margins being squeezed by the internet-only companies, things are not looking good. Plus, and this is the big differentiator for me, the cost of of Sky is incredible. If you compare a Netflix account with a Sky account, it's quite shocking. In a household without a sports fan, let's just move them out of the way for a moment, you're looking at £30 per month for Sky Cinema as opposed to £8 a month for Netflix and six fifty a month for Amazon Prime. It's, it just doesn't stack up. Choice is also killing Sky. Amazon have 18 
thousand movies and Netflix has fifteen thousand. Sky less than two thousand. Neil is not going to find his um, his indie foreign film on Sky, but he's in with a chance on Amazon or Netflix. He certainly is. <laughs> So what you're saying, Graham, is if I can wean my wife off watching tennis, I can save money by getting rid of those sports channels. Yeah. Excellent idea. (laughs) When she listens to this, we'll have that discussion. Okay, so with that in mind, let's move on to Amazon. <laughs> Have we just been put in the middle of his, I think his so. marriage? Oh, yeah. hell. Yeah, I'm on Les's, Les's <laughs> side here. And so am I. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, you're on your own, mate. That's what Nothing friends are new for. There. <laughs> Moving back to Amazon, I'll discount their TV shows as both Amazon and Netflix approach that in the same way. High quality, well scripted and generally intelligent. When it comes to movies, their approaches are quite different. Amazon fund mid-range films, working with filmmakers they want to support and release the films to the cinema first. Films such as Manchester by the Sea, The Big Sick and Wonder Wheel are all examples of this. They get a cinema release awards sometimes particularly manchester and then they're shown on amazon three months later to them cinema is the advertising and gets people to watch and or subscribe a good way to build word of mouth and possibly more subscriber now netflix that's something a bit different they create movies to show like bright or buy films that to stop them being shown in cinemas like annihilation up to now and this is a great point from phil foster it has mainly been direct-to-video movies. Cloverfield Paradox, Mute, and the aforementioned Bright. This approach is angering industry people. The French have banned them from Cannes, and the latest today is Netflix uh, threatening to hit back like some sort of Orangeman character. Uh, in reply, they've also bought Luc Besson's company Eurocorp to make mid-range films, and rumour has it, a direct-to-Netflix sequel to Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Oh, crumbs. It cannot get worse. <laughs> I think it can. No. However, <laughs> so do you think this approach to film distribution will have a long-term impact? What do you think? If they start getting banned from film festivals, where can they go? If this extends towards award bodies, this will be an interesting watch. I can't wait to see how this pans out. Amazon are used to doing things in the Silicon Valley way, disrupt the market, innovate, see what works, undercut the competition, and monopolise the hell out of whatever's left. And yes, I know Amazon are not in Silicon Valley, they're based in Seattle, but they have that Silicon Valley mindset. The film industry, very traditional, lots of interlocking parts, The movies are the final product, but the underpinnings, there's lots of independent units, mega studios like Disney and Warner Brothers are the exception. There's thousands of indie indie companies, independent producers, and then there's all the sort of traditional structures, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, and then there's the festivals, Cannes, Venice, Toronto, Sundance, South by Southwest. There is no single entity, and it's very fragmented, hell of a hard thing to disrupt. Okay, so that was the first point and some interesting comments there. So, Graham, what do you have as a potential threat to the future of cinema? You know, when I started to think about this, uh, I thought, all oh, right, let's talk about virtual reality and glasses-free 3D. And But in reality, I don't think any of that makes sense. Uh, with most technologies, it's the underlying underpinnings that drive changes, the data, the structures and those sorts of things. I really don't think what's happening is, uh, is going to be bad for the industry. If we look at the music industry, uh, and that has gone through the same sort of revolution from pressed vinyl LPs to streaming music service, people still go 
go to gigs. People listen to more varied music than ever before. There is more varied music about, but people still go to gigs. I believe the same is true of movies. We will be able to watch movies in higher resolution on massive screens with incredible surround sound in our own homes, but people will still want to go to the cinema for the unique experience. We're social animals, you know. We actively seek out the company of people. I think cinema will change but not in a technological way. What I think will happen is the customer experience will change with more specialist cinemas that are tailored to your individual needs. Going back to the, the music analogy, I listen to all my music these days on Spotify's streaming service, and every Monday morning, Spotify sends me 30 tracks based on the music genres I like. So every Monday, Monday morning, I get curated tracks of my favourite music genres. That's pirate metal and core violence, for anybody who's interested. <laughs> now imagine a cinema service. <laughs> I, I, I'm <laughs> sorry, you'll need to run that past me again outside of the podcast. <laughs> right, well, you're not into pirate metal. That's great. That is our, is our core is that, violence. Yeah. Is that what Johnny Depp does? <laughs> that, that, that's just <laughs> violence to society. Or to good taste, I think, is what Johnny Depp does. If you imagine a, a cinema service that would say, hey, would you three old codgers like to see a French animated sci-fi horror movie with a political subplot in 3D IMAX? I think that personalised movie viewing experience will become more feasible in the future. They will tailor things to their particular audiences and particular needs. It's already happening for opera and theatre fans who are flocking to the cinema to watch the latest productions beam straight from Covent Garden and the, the uh, RSC in Stratford. I see cinema as an experience happening more, and really the experiencing being the, the key point there. A screening in the UK followed by a Q&A with a director and actors beam directly from Hollywood, that sort of thing. Cinema is an interactive event rather than a passive viewing experience. I agree, Graham. Even even our Sydney, a local Sydney world is putting on quite a lot of Royal Shakespeare live shows. King Lear was sold out well before the end of March for an 11th of April showing on screen one. Also National Theatre Royal Opera Company, Bolshoi Ballet and Glyndebourne this year. Rugby and football have tr- been tried and they seem to have stalled probably the lack of a bar. Yeah, uh, yeah. Drinking being the uh, yes. the big missing factor. Yeah. And it's not often I say this, but I've got to agree with you. I think in a short term, event cinema is going to grow. I know locally in Stroud, the the cinema here uh, depends upon that. It, it's the big money earner for them. So who knows? In a couple of years, cinema could even buy in some of the sports packages Sky now take for granted. And Neil, that bar you mentioned could well be there. It will change the way we see cinema, certainly, if it happens. And in a bizarre way, it'll be going back to before cinema, when people went to the cinema many times a week. This is 1.2 billion that we spoke of earlier, where you have to go to see these things because there's nowhere else to see them. And of course, the other thing that we missed out is that a lot of people went to the cinema to watch the news. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's the 50s, isn't and it? And that's the and 50s. The 40s, well, it, especially yeah. in the 40s, yeah. so is the only place to get the news, wasn't it? OK, for the third point, let's get back to something more in this time frame, and something I mentioned last month. The summer season is no longer the summer season, and blockbusters come out all year long. Look at the success of Black Panther if you want proof of that. There's also the growing importance of the world market. These budgets are now so big. Most of the time, no single country can put these films into profit. The importance of the Asian market is also changing things. Transformers, Black Panther, Pacific Rim Uprising. All are using Far East locations as part of an aid to bolster their financial chances in countries like China or South Korea. Also, the things in changes in China are having an impact on the success 
success of their film. So far this year, Black Panther has made 1.2 billion and is the is the most successful film of the year so far. Yet, three of the next four highest money money earners are Operation Red Sea, Detective Chinatown 2, and Monster Hunt. Two. I noticed you got that title wrong last time, Jeff. It's not Monster House Two. <laughs> oh, oh. No more, oh. di- no more director Doyle. <laughs> and, and these combined have made more money than Black Panther. Jeff, you like quizzes? How much are those three blockbuster hits made in America? Well, Neil, you've caught me. You've actually done homework, and this is a first for these podcasts. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't expect it every month. No, 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 no. Okay, I give up. I don't know, as I really don't know anything about these films. Just like your knowledge of uh, French animation films, you need to read up on more on the subject of cinema, Jeff. The answer is the relation. Just over $4 million. The rest of the $1.3 billion is coming from Asia itself. That market has the power to change things. And if China starts buying American film companies, then the model could change completely. Hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on. I've missed the point here. Hang on. So these three movies together made 1.3 billion. Yes. Yeah. So far. That's unbelievable. I know. I've never even heard it. Well, no. I've, I've heard what? of, um, what was it, Monster Hunt 2. Yeah. But who, what's, what's Operation Red Sea? I've... Detective Chinatown 2. Detective Chinatown 2 sounds... Well, obviously, I saw the first one. (laughs) Yeah, well, you would. I wouldn't know what the second one's about. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is is important. I mean, this is is unbelievable. Here's three incredibly major films, and we know nothing about Bollywood's been going for years. Oh, yeah, Bollywood. But not... In that respect. Because you look at the likes of Pacific Rim and Pacific Rim Uprising, was that the second one? Um, I mean, they're made for China. Yeah. They're not for us. Yeah, I know. And The Great Wall as well was yeah. another one. Yeah. yeah. It's way in the whole balance over to that, you know, to that worldview rather than to a, an American view, which we've always been used to. So there is a big chance that the big movie pattern could change in line with other countries' holiday patterns, more Chinese New Year or less Christmas-focused, perhaps. Jeff, what do you think the impact will be? Well, I called Graham Obi-Wan earlier and I feel I should have called out to you, Neil, because I think what you've spoken about has the potentially the biggest impact in the short term on cinema. That's the only compliment I'm ever going to pay on this podcast. <laughs> it's anyone I've heard. <laughs> but a couple of words of caution. The Japanese bought American movie studios in the 80s and that really didn't have a big impact or change the type of movie being made or the release pattern. And don't forget, Orange Man is starting a trade war with China because they won't give his ball back. <laughs> now, if that intensifies, but obviously it depends on whether he sends missiles flying, then China may well stop American movies opening there, and that's a huge impact. I mean, Ready Player One is a massive worldwide hit thanks to China. If other countries follow that lead, it's possible that some film companies could go bankrupt, reducing the overall slate of films and budgets for others. With Disney currently having a monopoly particularly with the 20th Century Fox thing. They could hold too many franchise cards, then overall quality could dry up. Maybe I'm being too negative. Graham, your thoughts? Not this time. The upcoming takeover of 20th Century Fox by Disney could also reduce filmmaking options and almost certainly reduce the grown-up fare uh, that company makes. Right, OK. Well, let's bring our most influential conversation to a close in as few words as possible. Where do we think cinema will be from a decade from here? I'll go first. 
I think Neil is right in that the summer season will have been absorbed into an overall blockbuster release pattern with a more international feel. In with that, there will be Netflix and Amazon releases at a mid-range price, 30 million to 60 million. These will be to cinema two months before releasing on the platforms with awards and advertising. That'll be the name of the game there to give them that promotion. Small budget films will fill the art houses as more and more people get access to the tools to make films for next to nothing. You'd look as professional as anything out there today. You look at films like The Florida Project from last year, which is nominated for a whole load of awards, made for virtually no money. These will be personal and cutting edge, films that will get their makers onto lucrative Netflix, Amazon and what other platforms out there. These are the next generation of filmmakers. So in short, I don't think there'll be that much change in a decade, and I actually think there'll be more choice of people. Over to you, Neil. I agree. Well, all the providers are touting for our business. The current glut of well-put-together and entertaining films must continue. Long may it continue. I think the the unique thing about cinema is the experience. I know I'm banging on about this a bit, but we have TV and movies, but theatres still exist. We have incredible high-definition photography, but people still like paintings. Perfect digital recording of artists, but people still go to gigs. And cinema isn't going away anytime soon. People are always predicting that something is coming to an end because it satisfies our, our need for drama and fills column inches in the newspapers. I just don't see it ending now. I just don't think this... round of technological innovation will change much things will change but things will stay pretty much the way they are okay that's our views cinema has seen many changes and many threats over its 120 year history however that communal feeling of a shared experience in a darkened movie theater is a powerful one and i will believe will exist for many years to come optimism from jeff must have taken his happy pills today (laughs) let's see what our listeners uh, have to think about that and see if any of them want to send any comments in and we'll make sure they're read out right let's continue looking into the future with our popular movie news section Right, I'm first off with the um, movie news. Currently filming is the science fiction action adventure Boss Level. Set in the near future, and stop me if you've heard this before, a retired Special Forces soldier finds himself trapped in an endless loop of the one day in which he is killed. To stop the loop and hopefully save his life, he has to figure out what is happening and why. Sounds like another version of Groundhog Day or Source Code or Edge of Tomorrow to me. What do you both think? Well, I'm all for another ground dog day, Graham, as long as it's Neil stuck in an endless loop and watching horror films. Oh, Jeff, forced to watch all those mov- Marvel movies on repeat, starting with those two, those terrible Spider-Man films in the 1970s. I'm going to phone the studio. You have to go one better, don't you? Yeah. I, I think we might have drifted away from the uh, movie news there for a moment, you two. Uh, going back into our loop on boss level, it is written and directed by Joe... Carnahan, sure. uh, who made the excellent The Grey a few years ago. And then let himself down by making the A-Team movie. Oh, I'd forgotten that, yeah. <laughs> and it stars up-and-coming actor Frank Gorillo. Along with him are Naomi Watts, King Kong and Birdman, and Alla- Annabelle Wallace from TV's Peaky Blinders, uh, and last year's The Mummy, uh, though I think we'll, um, we won't hold that against her. I guess, though, the Big casting news and follows on from something we discussed last month is Mel Gibson. Jeff, he seems to be on a bit of a roll at the moment. Indeed he is. Following his critically acclaimed Heartbreak Ridge and the vast fortune Daddy's Home 2 made, I didn't say it was deserved, 
Mr. Gibson is back in demand. Hang on, hang on. 52% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and critics, 19%. Daddy's Home 2 is appalling. Yeah, yeah. And that 52% probably voted for Orange Man. <laughs> On the acting front, he's already completed roles in The Professor and the Madman, in which he portrays James Murray, the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary in the 19th century. What? Okay. It's worth reading up on that. That's currently in the courts, that film. He's also in Dragged Across Concrete. Oh, that I approve of, if only for Braveheart. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, both due for release later this year. Also, as a director, he's close to getting the financing for his next project, a sequel to The Passion of the Christ called Resurrection, focusing on the days between crucifixion and resurrection of the Christ. Graham, you going to be ordering your tickets to that one soon? Absolutely, that'll be up there with going to watch the new British horror film Ghost Stories. Never going to happen. Neil, have you got something sensible to talk about in the news? I'm afraid not, Graham. This month I'm going to talk about the continuation of Disney's stupid idea to turn all of their theme park rides into big-budget movies. Over the years, we've had Pirates of the Caribbean and Tomorrowland. And who can forget the Eddie Murphy clunker? The Haunted Mansion. Glad you had to narrow out uh, the Eddie Murphy clunker. You know, a real low point for his standards. Hang on. Couldn't be any worse than Pluto Nash. 4% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. That's, that's horrible, no. My, my pleasure, Graham. While the latest one, Jungle Cruise, doesn't have an Eddie Murphy, I think is where his common sense stops. Jungle Cruise, the ride, which first opened in Disneyland in 1955, remains very popular. I'm not sure how you're going to turn it into a ride, although a dangerous animal-infested jungle into an exciting modern-day film. Aren't we seeing the Rampage on Sunday? Yes, we are. So there we go, that's probably it. I think Rampage will be a step up from Jungle Cruise. Um, but, yeah, let's, let's look at ways that this could work. And let's pick up on something we spoke last month. How about, as it goes through the jungle, they feed people like Harvey Weinstein or <laughs> Kevin Spacey to the dangerous animals during that trip? What do you think? Possibly. However, unlike you, Jeff, um, Disney knows where the limit of good tastes end. <laughs> their, their way to get people into the cinema is with a good cast, which is why Dwayne Johnson, of course, Emily Blunt, she's is in Dwayne Johnson, is in... Um, Rampage. Rampage, of course. And uh, Emily Blunt and Jack Whitehall have decided to climb on board this cruiser. All uh, we know so far is Blunt and Whitehall play brother and sister. As for the main <laughs> plot details... <laughs> really? Disney they look so alike. So, so alike, don't they? <laughs> Disney are keeping it under wraps. How? It's the story of a fairground ride that's been around for almost as long as Jeff has, unless they're going to combine Jungle Cruise with the next Pirates of the Caribbean. There isn't going to be much originality there, not that Pirates of the Caribbean was particularly original. What do you two think? Are there any other Disney rides that could be turned into films? There is Splash Mountain uh, and Space Mountain, or they could bring back a full version of Captain EO with a digitally recreated Michael Jackson. Um, well, I personally would like to see a film version of The Hall of the Presidents. Oh, you know, the waxwit tribute of former American presidents. But in my film version, they answer a plea from a crying child to stop the orange evil taking over their country. Just think of it. They come to life, led by Abraham Lincoln and an ultimately reformed Richard Nixon, who dies a good guy, they then have to battle Orange Man and his puppet master before returning the USA to a Kennedy-like presidency. Oh, my God. 
How have you managed to turn a silly story into a Disney ride into a tackle on American politics? How do you do it? Words fail me. So what is the third news story about? And please try and keep politics out of it. Of course, Neil. You know I always listen to you. That's why I bought shares in Toys R Us and Maplins. Okay, now I've got to be very careful and I've had a lawyer check this out. Nor will we mention it again, as we do not work for GCHQ. We are not involved in any way, nor does our podcast have the odd one downloading in the Russian Federation. None of this ever happened (laughs) for anyone other than our regular listeners who download this podcast. We know nothing about spies. Okay, moving on very quickly, and hopefully that's currently forgotten. My news is about a film called Greyhound, which is currently filming. Thankfully, it isn't about a dog. It's a World War II action drama. Tom Hanks stars and has written script for this naval adventure, which is based on the book The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester. Unlike Jungle Cruise, the film company has released the synopsis of the film, which reads as follows. In the early days of World War II, an international convoy of 37 Allied ships, led by Captain Ernest Krauss, Tom Hanks, in his first command of a US destroyer, crosses the treacherous North Atlantic while hotly pursued by wolf packs of Nazi U-boats. Now, that synopsis to me does sound exciting, and if it captures some of the qualities of the novel, it'll be it'll give a real sense of the tensions on board ships which could have been sunk at any moment. Also in the cast are Elizabeth Shue from Leaving Las Vegas and the more recent Death Wish, which will draw a veil over, and that excellent British actor Stephen Graham, Boardwalk Empire and Walk Like a Panther, one of the most underrated films this year. It could be the saving Private Ryan of the Waves when it opens in April 2019. What do you guys think? Yeah, that's it does sound like a film I'd want to watch, and well done take keeping politics out of it i've just re- started reading the book oh yes jeff uh, i see you managed to keep the most interesting movie news item for yourself this month <laughs> we noticed i get mel gibson and neil gets eddie murphy but you get tom hanks yeah something is rotten in the state of podcast news i can tell you well you shouldn't trust me they <laughs> don't How did we fall for it? Yeah. (laughs) Moving on, let's go on to the review section. Here I will start with Steven Spielberg's latest, Ready Player One. This movie is based on Ernest Cline's 2011 best-selling book. It's set in Columbus, Ohio in the year 2045. And the movie opens with the death of trillionaire games developer James Halliday played excellently by Mark Rylance. In his will, Halliday bequeaths his company and his entire personal fortune to the first person who finds three Easter eggs hidden in the Oasis, which is the virtual world he's created. The Oasis has become a a refuge for mankind as the actual real world has become so terrible that escape to the Oasis is the only way out of the desolation of reality. After five years of fruitless searching, the first Easter egg is found by our hero Wade Watts, played by Ty Sheridan. His success, however, attracts the attentions of Innovative Online Industries, or IOI, who, since Halliday's death, have expended considerable time and money in trying to find Halliday's Easter eggs. If IOI can get to the eggs first, then they will control the Oasis and have a complete global monopoly, which 
they intend to exploit for reasons of uh, corporate greed. So, it's the classic battle. Plucky teenager takes on mega corporation for control of a global resource. The first thing to say is that it's a Spielberg movie, uh, and this shows most clearly in the energy that he brings to every scene. It's incredible. It's an action movie, and Spielberg is one of the best action movie directors ever. His technical mastery is evident in almost every shot. He charges the action set pieces and turns them all up to 11. His camera swoops and weaves in and out of the action nowhere more expertly than in the initial car chase. This set piece is just wonderful. Powerful kinetic action and constant cuts between the players, the rivals, the obstacles and the traps set in their way. The opening race is a sim- cinematic roller coaster, both literally and metaphorically. And whilst I'm talking about the camera, the cinematography is also very good with handheld camera work in the real world and lots of very smooth, steady cam and dolly shots when we're in the oasis. I like this, very grainy and with music grey tones and very depressing whilst the oasis is vibrant and oversaturated i like the camera work a lot the music score is a bit of a letdown as spielberg's go-to musical mastermind john williams was not available due to his commitments on the last jedi not not quite right sorry sorry to yeah, cut go in on, there. No. no the reason john williams didn't do this is because spielberg did the post and ready player one back to back and williams because of his advance in age could only do one so he elected to do the post and leave this to somebody else so hang on so he did he did the jedi then he had a bit of a rest and did the post and then he did the post and, yeah yeah it's okay. not bad for somebody who's about 86 years old uh, 86 is old <laughs> yeah <laughs> Sorry, in your case, I'd say that's you. Yeah, uh, uh, okay, so um, he's called, he used his backup composer, uh, Alan Silvestri. Silvestri, yeah, who did Back to the Future and the Avengers. Uh, His score mixes 80s pop and rock with John Williams' rip-off orchestral elements. Apart from the main theme, the score isn't very notable or memorable. However, moving on to the screenplay, this movie needs every gram of Spielberg's technical brilliance to make up for the flimsy script. Whilst the main structural components of the book remain, uh, the screenplay is a complete rewrite. They took a a young adult movie and made it kid-friendly, and all the dark elements of the book have been removed and they've streamlined and simplified the quests a lot the result is is an excellent coherent fast-paced adventure movie so the structural rejigging they did with the movie works well however the dialogue and the narrative components don't work at all and this leads me to the actors the script's problems fall most heavily on the leading man Ty Sheridan, who does his best with an uneven script. However, any young actor would struggle with this material, and it, he ends up sounding a bit flat and wooden. In contrast, however, Olivia Cook is fantastic as Sheridan's love interest, Artemis, balancing the wobbly script as excellently as she balances the motorbike in the initial chase scene. That motorbike being actually from uh, the Japanese anime film uh, Akira. Akira. Oh, great. All I want at this point is Neil to speak French animation and I'm well away, yeah. (laughs) Uh, She shines in all all, all her scenes. You can can see why why Spielberg gave her a lot more to do in the movie than in the book. She's too valuable a resource to squander. Other standout performances are naturally Mark Rylance as the nerd superstar game developer. Oh, and TJ Miller as IROC, who delivers an excellent clownish performance as IOI's hired muscle. And finally, Ben Mendelsohn as the evil head of IOI. Spielberg certainly does know how to put a team together. Finally, I couldn't finish without talking about the special effects. 
you can see where all the time and work went in creating this movie. 90% of the action takes place in the Oasis. It's no wonder Spielberg had time to go off and film the post with Hankson Street whilst the special effects were being worked on. It must have taken ILM at least a good couple of years to put this together. When I saw the first trailer, I was worried that the avatars in the Oasis might look too realistic, but they were rendered with just the right amount of unreality to ensure that you never got that uncanny valley feeling and lost the illusion. I think that the best part of this film was that it didn't try to be the book. Uh, you can enjoy each one separately. I'd give it a solid four out of five from me. Oh, and my favourite line in the movie, which is not in the book, was fanboys can always tell a hater. Talking of haters, <laughs> Jeff, your thoughts on the movie? <laughs> I, I'm shocked, Graham. <laughs> I am actually saving all my hate for another review that's coming up, and it's not this one. So looking forward um, to it. I said in the first podcast I'm in awe of Spielberg, and I continue to be with this film as well. This is how blockbusters should be made. It's fast-paced, intelligent, and exciting. Real thought has gone into the script, which you mentioned, which... I might have liked it more than you, but then I haven't read the book. I'm only going from what I've seen on screen. However, there are a couple of points I want to pick up from your review. I cannot disagree more with your comments about the score. I thought Alan Silvestri got this one right. After all, he was front and centre in the 80s with the type of pop culture reference you, you mentioned Back to the Future. Don't forget, he also scored Romance in the Stone, Predator and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The lightness of tone in his score was, to me, perfect. Let's go on to casting. As much as I like Ben Mendelsohn... How many times must we give this Rogue One performance? Whereas Leanna Waithe, who you didn't mention, who played H, was a revelation. And to be honest, to me, almost stole the film. Yeah, I agree. One other point I'd like to make, and again, I, I bow to you on this one from the book. Olivia's Cook's character has a birthmark. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Graham. Does she have that in the book yeah, as well? Yeah, she has that in the book. Yeah, yeah see, a, no, it's I thought, a big point in the book. Yeah, Excellent, because that's an excellent touch in the film and really helped humanise and ground that character. For me, the biggest weakness of the film is that we don't see enough of the real world and by extension, the threat is not as dark as it should be. You look at those 80s films that this is trying to copy, like E.T., where there's a real darkness. You know, the Keys character for most of the film, you genuinely don't know what he is and he does seem to be scary this doesn't have it i mean even in the film ben mendelson's character goes soft in the end without it the jeopardy's consigned to online gaming which to be honest for me wasn't that frightening and that brings me to my final point which graham i know you'll disagree with me it's a religious film spielberg has made a religious film halliday is essentially christ who and i'm going to sound the gun because if you haven't seen the film just be warned (coughs) halliday has been resurrected in his own world and leads the way to a new religion and let's not forget in all these comment about easter eggs easter i mean come on that's a resurrection if ever there was one need i say any more oh come on jeff not this twaddle again okay i agree it's the story of resurrection but not in the christian tradition i think you're being a bit too modern halliday is essentially easter is essentially achilles who is a hero to an entire generation and then when he dies he's resurrected by his mother made immortal and goes to live on a different level of existence in Elysium. There you go. That's that's my, my version of it. Oh, and Easter eggs, like Christmas trees, are pagan symbols that were culturally appropriated by the Christians. Jeff, take a day out of the cinema and read a book. No, 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 not that one. <laughs> not that one. Something written after the Enlightenment. I, I borrowed this one from my wife. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, my my review is going to be short and sweet because uh, just need to be shorter. Uh, <laughs> as an outside gamer in my youth, you know, fresh air. Nope. As someone who hasn't read the book, I know I only got a few of the Easter eggs, references to games, films, and the like. I can only comment on my initial reactions. I loved it. It has pace, not quite the pace of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dune, my gold standard for breathless pace, but fast enough nonetheless. I like the lead characters. They project in the Oasis what they'd like to be and not what they perceive to be their teenage real-world personas. I did like the ending and the banning of the Oasis for two days a week so that people can appreciate reality. It's a nice touch. And as someone who hates horror films, the scene in The Shining, which I have seen... Um, yes, I have seen The Shining, wow. by the way. I really have, honest. Uh, took me by surprise. People at work have asked me whether it's okay for their pre-teens to see the films. And I concluded if they haven't seen The Shining, they never get the significance. I'm sure they'll let me know if I was wrong. All in all, <laughs> fun, fast and entertaining. Better than most of their genre. Okay, Jeff, what have you got to thrill us with this month? Well, my review this month is a science fiction thriller, A Quiet Place. Before talking about the plot, guys, I just want to check with you that you've seen it and you're able to contribute to the, rev- to the review, as is our policy. Yes, thank you, Jeff. I saw it last night. I'm still recovering. Uh, and I didn't see it. Science fiction thriller. Pull the other one, Jeff. This is a horror film. A Quiet Place is a taunt, edge-of-the-seat thriller directed by and starring John Krasinski. Best known to date for his role in the American version of the TV series The Office and shortly to be Jack Ryan in the new series of the same name on Amazon. He stars along with his real-life wife, Emily Blunt, soon to be seen in Mary Poppins Returns. I think, Neil, you will be watching that one. Of course I will. Of course. Now, the plot of this tense movie kicks in sometime after an apocalypse has decimated Earth. Initially, you have no idea what has happened, And in a lean style typical of this film, the first thing you see on screen is the caption, Day 89. Before I go any further... (coughs) Now, I sounded the spoiler alert there because I'd ask you to jump this review if you haven't seen it. Quiet Place is best enjoyed knowing as little about it as possible. Go for... And I can't believe I'm about to say what I'm about to say... Go forward on the podcast to the next time Neil speaks. That way you're assured of not knowing anything about this gem of a film, because quite frankly, Neil has nothing to add to this conversation. Okay, back to the plot, which I will front load. After that mysterious Day 89 caption, you find Evelyn, Miss Blunt, and Lee Abbott, Mr. Krasinski, and their three children foraging around a deserted store for supplies. Having taken what they need, they head back to their farm. What you see as they head back is that there is chaos everywhere. You notice also that no one is talking. The family use sign language to communicate and they're also barefoot to keep noise to a minimum. As yet, there's no real clue to what's destroyed humanity. However, the shop visit has dire consequences and soon the three children are reduced to two. With that child's demise, you get a glimpse of the strange and deadly killers which are responsible for the end of our world. Creatures that are attracted to noise and will kill anyone who makes it. Not a world to have a sneezing fit in. Or on the plus side, Neil's ramblings will be cut short very quickly. (laughs) At this point, another caption appears on screen as the film jumps forward over a year. The family is still grieving over the loss of their youngest son. However, there's an important change. Evelyn is heavily pregnant and shortly due to give birth. 
how on earth is this going to be done silently? The answer to that question, and the nerve-shredding battle with the strange creatures, is effectively the second half of A Quiet Place. With A Quiet Place, what we have is a very clever feature, which relies on tension, but not gore. I was worried at first, as near the beginning, there was a group of four consecutive jump scares. Thankfully, that's it as I don't want this intriguing setup to succumb to that overused feature of the modern-day horror movies, the jump scare. In the second half of the film, it focuses on suspense. It's a lesson learned from the master himself, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. Now, in this film, as we go into the second half, it means you separate the family members, you show what the dangers are, and you let your imagination do the rest. A good example is one moment where I actually flinched in the film. As I said earlier, everyone is barefoot to reduce noise. At one point in the film, we are shown a nail which is sticking up on a set of stairs. The build-up to how that ends up in someone's foot is almost unbearable. And quite frankly, almost unwatchable. And you wanted me, with my sensitive disposition, to watch it. You said it's, you said, just said it's unwatchable. <laughs> I just want to check, Neil. Do you have bone spurs? OK, back to the film. <laughs> For the suspense to work, you have to care about the characters on screen. And it's to the credit of the cast as to how well this is done. It is important that they are believable as a family. For instance, one of the children is deaf. An excellent performance from Millicent Simmons, who is deaf in real life. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, it just shows how good an actress she mm. is. As a result, in the course of the film, the whole family knows sign language. And that's a key factor in their survival. So when the full hell of the creatures happens at the climax of the film, one of the family sacrifices himself so the others can survive. This is not only shocking, it's also heartbreaking to watch. And that is thanks to the time taken to build the characters and the believability as a family unit. That is not something you can say for many films of this type. In fact, family is the most important theme in A Quiet Place. Through its fantasy setting, the film deals with very real topics. Firstly, there is the family tragedy and guilt. Millicent Simmons' character blames herself for the death of her younger brother at the beginning of the film. And this is referenced throughout. It's never fully resolved. And to be honest, that's how it is in life. Now, in that regard, A Quiet Place can be seen as a nightmare inverted version of the Robert Redford Oscar-winning film, Ordinary People. Indeed, the whole film can be seen as a metaphor for how the family unit struggles to stay together in our uncertain, anxiety-ridden times. Although I'm sure that can be said of many other generations past. Life in general has become more of a roller coaster in the last few years, and I believe this film picks up on this anxiety by giving that anxiety the form of these creatures. OK, I'm going on a bit, so enough of the psychobabble. Hooray! Thank you, Sigmund Fraud. Yes. Neil is just getting edgy because we haven't spoken about the one thing in this film he wants to know more about. The monsters. These creatures go from quick sightings, like Jaws, to too much exposure by the climax of the film. Just what are these bizarre, fast creatures with a mouthful of razor-sharp teeth? And where do they come from? That's never really explained, to be honest. Mainly because the characters have to keep speech to a minimum, so plot exposition is out. Instead, you view newspaper clippings as the father tries to work out a way to stop them. Most likely, they are extraterrestrial in origin. However, they could well be man-made as some sort of bioweapon. And they do have a passing resemblance to the xenomorphs from the alien films. 
or to continue with my religious film uh, theme, great, God, I think no, you'd like this. Here we go again. They could be sent from God to destroy us. Some of the news clippings refer to them as dark angels which have come from the skies. Now, I like it that this is open to interpretation, although I'm sure the sequel, which will now follow following its unprecedented success, uh, will attempt to resolve that. It doesn't treat the audience as people who have to be spoon-fed everything. You can work things out for yourself. And that brings a nice comparison to the original Night of the Living Dead, which, by the way, do you know, is 50 years old this year. Okay, so I can tell you're overawed by that fact. Um, now, in the Night of the Living Dead, the plague starts allegedly from a returning spaceship, and the action takes place mainly on a farm, very much like A Quiet Place. And watching A Quiet Place, it struck me that it does look a bit like The Walking Dead in the way it's set up. And also brings to mind some of the qualities of John Wyndham, things like yep. Day of the Triffids. Yeah, I, I certainly saw that when I when I looked at it, yeah. Yep. And one final thing before I move on, it doesn't have an open ending. Another curse of the modern horror film. The final image of this film is one of the most satisfying I can remember in a long time. Now, I suppose I'd better look at the things that I didn't like about the film. Um, some things to moan about. Surprised you've gone on this long. I'm not. <laughs> well, I've only got two things to moan about. And I, I don't think, uh, Graham, I don't think you'll disagree with me on one of these. Too much is given away in the trailers. Yep, yeah, I thought so. Yep. The first part of the film, leading up to the death of the small child, well, that's all in there. And it's not the shock surprise it should be. And the second, Marco Beltrami's score is just so bombastic. It doesn't need it. I mean, there are some nice bits where he does a slightly out of tune piano is like the whole thing's running yep. down like yep. society but generally it's over the top I, I think these are minor whinges about a first class film and one of the big surprises of the, the year so far Graham what do you think? Yeah yeah, I liked it I, I must admit I actually thought it was great uh, I saw it last night in a packed uh, theatre it's not what I would call a horror movie uh, it's a blend of sci-fi and horror shot and cut to amplify the, the peril the humans are in I like you Jeff was reminded of, of John Wyndham's The Day of the Triffids and because I'm supposed to be the, the sci-fi nut on this podcast it also reminded me of J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World where the world is mostly devoid of humans what impressed me was the whole premise of the movie you know noise is your enemy I have never sat through such a quiet movie I'm surprised no one has, uh, no one's done this before. It was so novel. Well, apart from the uh, early silent movie era, obviously, it was very, very quiet. Uh, the monsters were great, nicely alien, fast, smart and deadly. Uh, oh, and armour-plated, so you couldn't shoot them. Uh, and the humans were just a really ordinary family. I loved, I loved them. You know, the storytelling, again, my favourite thing. No exposition, just being dropped into the world. All the exposition in the movie was done, as you said, uh, through newspaper cuttings and papers scattered across the father's desk. Excellently done. And the opening scene leading to the, the the major family tragedy was excellently done, even though it was given away in the trailer. And Jeff, you mentioned that you see what is going to happen just a split second before the character does, uh, and that leads to a heightened sense of danger. A lot of the time during this movie, you can see the problem about to start and it was so funny in the cinema because it was so quiet you could hear people around you saying under their breath oh no oh no well i've cleaned that up for the podcast people were actually saying a lot more than that especially the guy behind me uh, <laughs> but, but also uh, um to, to go with that you also see the way they can stop these creatures yes. before the people on the film yeah, yeah. You, you can work 
you're given all the clues to yeah. work out what's going on. Yeah. Again, it, it's just treating you with intelligence. Yeah. It, it is, yeah. No, no, I've, I've said this before. I like films which were actually say, oh, no, the audience will get this. And there were many scenes I liked. You know, lots and lots of things in it. I thought, that's really clever, that's really clever. This was so well edited there. There's not an ounce of fat on this movie. Every scene feeds every other, and there's lots of questions occur during the movie and then get answered later on. Things link up. The pace never drops. Even the scene of the parents dancing to Neil Young's Harvest Moon just reinforces the strength of their love uh, and you see them as a team defending uh, their their family and doing everything they can to protect them and that just makes the father's sacrifice more poignant now before Jeff thinks I am now his horror BFF this is an exceptional movie for the genre it's more alien than Texas Chainsaw Massacre it's intelligent not gratuitous it's peril rather than gore and I would struggle to think of another horror movie of this quality I would put it next to things like Jaws as you mentioned The Sixth Sense Poltergeist and Tremors so you mean I was a bit too early getting the badge horror fans together made up yes I think you were (laughs) I'm never going to wear that Uh, I'll leave (laughs) it for Neil (laughs) okay well thanks for that Graham I'm glad you went to see it and uh, kept up the tradition of the podcast (laughs) one other thing that I that I thought was not only is this clever but this is going to be a cinch to sell to the Chinese market because everything's subtitled already because they're signing to each other. So yeah. they're, they're not gonna, they're only, there's only a little bit of dialogue, and that's it, job done. World movie instantly made for you. Just got to get over those people that don't watch subtitled films. I'll leave you with another bit of good news connected with this film. It was made by Michael Bay's production company, Platinum Dunes, <laughs> which specialises in remaking horror films for a modern audience. Oh, in the past, they've remade Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street. I see them all in your DVD collection, Neil. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, Michael Bay... Yeah. I've got a Michael Bay twitch. Any time somebody says Michael Bay, I get the oh, for God's sake, you know. Michael Bay is underrated. <laughs> um, but anyway, following on from this success, they've stopped remaking horror films and they're now focusing on original content. And it's oh, about time. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's go over to Neil and see if he's actually watched a film this month. Okay, Isle of Dogs. Wes Anderson's latest film is a film about dogs, believe it or not. In Megasaki, the dog population has overrun the city and they're getting diseased. Mayor Kobayashi decrees that they all sent to Trash Island. Visually, Isle of Dogs is stunning. And yes, it's all Wes Anderson from the saturated colours, tons of symmetry, the long tracking shot, huge panoramas and deadpan descriptions. The animation is superb. The amount of detail in all the dogs, their fur moving in the breeze is incredible and all done stop motion. The look is perfect for an utterly distinctive Wes Anderson film, one that deals with growing up and taking responsibility. Many of his previous films have not gone world of dogs example killed in moonrise kingdom and royal tenenbaums or drugged in fantastic mr fox and the thing carries on in this one dogs are thrown onto the refuse dump many die and diseases everywhere and the heroic 11 year old atari played by koyu ranking has got to sue something about it 
He speaks untranslated Japanese throughout. The mayor Kobayashi speaks Japanese, who sometimes gets translated. Brian Cranston plays chief, an outsider among the dogs, speaks English, as do all the other dogs. This forces us to concentrate on the dogs. It's slightly unnerving to begin with. While not understanding Japanese, we get the gist. It's the dogs that are important. Do the Japanese appreciate their language being treated subordinate? I don't know. Perhaps something to watch for in the news. I'm sure Jeff will mention it. Oh, don't worry, you'll have plenty to talk about with this film. The story's not complicated, sort of Lassie come home in reverse, but it's the detail, the feel that's important. I remember that when Jeff starts talking. The rest of the dogs are voiced by who's who of Wes Anderson's stalwarts. For example, Bob Balaban, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Harvey Keitel, Jeff Goldblum. I tried at one point to tell them apart and managed a couple of times. Maybe this was deliberate. After all, Angelica Houston voices a mute poodle. Francis McDormand is the translator occasionally. That's above Others, Scarlett Johansson, F. Murray Abraham, Leif Schreiber and Tilda Swinton get to actually distance themselves from the rest, but only briefly. Yoko Ono plays an assistant scientist and Akiro Ito plays Professor Watanabe. Ken Watanabe plays a surgeon. (laughs) All of this I found out after the film. During the film, I was royally entertained by the whole thing. One of Anderson's best. It's a weird film. I laughed repeatedly, often at the absurdity. I liked it. What can I say? I'm sure you're going to, Jeff. Uh, I have plenty to say, but I'll let Graham go first. Yeah, um, I thought it was okay. Um, uh, not great, but okay. Uh, the technical side of the movie, I must say, uh, I liked great animation, wonderful music, and the, but the story for me was just too simple. It's not a kid's film, but it's not really adults either. Some of the storytelling elements were clever, especially the way in which the Japanese language was used. I did like that. I also liked the mixture of still images drawn in the Japanese style, cartoon animations in the anime style and stop motion elements mixed and intercut together uh, uh, yeah technically yeah technically it's a wes anderson film it really is the constant framing got a little annoying and distracting uh, the cage bars framing the dogs mayor kobayashi in front of a big square projector the view through hundreds of tiny tv sets yes it, uh, we get it wes you like framing and rectangles but can we get on with the movie which reminds me uh, have either of you seen the youtube Honest Trailers, every Wes Anderson movie. I haven't seen it's, it yet, it's, no. It's, I'm going to. It's hilarious. I'll put a link in the show notes. They talk about Anderson's love of the rectangle, dead animals, oh, yes. characters with dead one. parents. I have seen that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and how the same elements constantly replay <laughs> in all Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, and I, I, got, you know, I got a lot of that. The bloody framing drove me mad. Um, don't get me wrong, I like a lot of his other stuff. I just feel he was having a bit of an off day when he conceived this one. However, back to the main grumble about this movie. I don't think there was enough story uh, in this movie. Uh, and I don't think it was enough of a story what was there to, to drive a whole movie. The constant references to history and the cat lovers was not explored in enough detail to understand how the city got to the state where it needed to take such drastic action. It was a bit of a letdown for me, I've got to admit. Uh, my major takeaway uh, from this movie was that uh, Wes Anderson does not like or understand haikus and uh, mountains of trash without Wally. Oh, I just couldn't take that. Jeff? Well, where do I start? Oh. 
I really dislike this film. It's self-indulgent, dull, confusing with its multiple flashbacks and uninvolving with its characters. It's the reasons why directors like Wes Anderson need a strong producer. Someone to say, look, sorry Wes, this ain't going to work. Now stop with this silly animation nonsense, or shit, depending on what you want to view it as, and make a real film. Mind you, that should have been said to David Lynch and everything he's done since Blue Velvet, in my opinion. Harsh, harsh. The real films I'm talking of are things like Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom, both of which I enjoyed, and at least they didn't waste Bill Murray like this nonsense does. The human characters are not sympathetic and the bizarre use of language just unfathomable. It's also slightly racist. <laughs> the only person who is white amongst the characters is the one who's instrumental in reversing the Isle of Dogs policy, which, by the way, I think is a good one. I'd also send cats there, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> If you want an entertaining film on this subject, then watch the 2001 family film Cats and Dogs. The clue there's the word family film. At least that's aimed at the whole family and not just for the odd uncle you sit in the corner when he comes to visit. I appreciate him in a minority in my view, although Graham does come close. It's not the first time and it won't be the last. Well, unfortunately, some of our listeners have tried to correct me on this and, and they clearly think like you, Neil. Yeah. Paul Nicholas tells me that the film is, and I quote, a massive homage to Akira Kurosawa. Anderson has said so himself. If you don't like Kurosawa, you won't like Isle of Dogs. Although if you don't like Kurosawa, says Paul, then you're wrong. I agree with him completely. He's a really good man. Guess what? I don't like Kurosawa. Oh, you're kidding me. No, I sat through Kagamusha. It is one of the worst experiences of my life. (laughs) And to be honest, Seven Samurai, overrated. What are you talking about? Our old friend of the podcast, Phil Foster, who I normally agree with, on his Phil the Bear blog says of the film, as a fan of Anderson, it's absolute genius. Inventive, funny and beautiful. And that's what it is. Inventive, funny and beautiful. And this is... You just ignore ignore Jeff. (laughs) If you're listening to it thinking, shall I go to it? No, no, just don't listen to him. If you like Wes Anderson, you'll like this. Uh, Jeff is just being And if you like Akira Kurosawa, you'll like it. (laughs) The fact our listeners agree with Neil saddens me. On that sad note, that's almost it for us uh, this month. Before we go, let's do a quick round-up of what else we've been watching. Jeff, what else caught your eye this month? And as usual, I include both TV and cinema. Well, just to be a bit different... You're proving that this podcast, yes. <laughs> I'm going to do cinema, TV and radio. For cinema, Journeyman, an excellent British film written, directed and starring Paddy Constantine as a boxer who suffers a life-changing injury following a fight. While it follows some of the sports movie conventions, it's thought-provoking, heartbreaking and in one sequence, really shocking. A British movie contender, which sadly didn't get a wide enough distribution under the UK, still a film called Blockers, so see it if you can. TV, season two of This Country, a BBC comedy production of six episodes filmed mainly in the local town of Northleach in the style of The Office. Season two, in my opinion, was even better than season one. Brother and sister team of Daisy May and Charlie Cooper 
It's very funny, and with a finale which veered skillfully into sadness, it's also managed to set up what I hope will be a third series. If you haven't seen it, it's well worth tracking down. Although my son won't watch it, as he said, it's too realistic, and as he grew up in North Each, he should know. <laughs> Finally, for radio, I've just got round to listening to the two plays Ray Connolly has written based on his films, That'll Be the Day and Stardust, about the rise and fall of a rock star in the 60s and 70s easily a match of the films i've been re-watching two of my favorite martial arts films kung fu hustle which is utterly bonkers stephen chow directs writes and stars in the 2005 film follow-up to shaolin soccer that's also bonkers martial arts meets slapstick silliness and very entertaining it well, is well i hope it's entertaining as much as isle of dogs <laughs> We've the moved on now, Jeff. Oh, we have moved, moved on. on. We've moved on, please. God. The second film is 2010's IP Man, or, or it's IP Man for Graham, Ip Man, uh, starring Donnie Yen, the blind resistance fighter in Star Wars Rogue One. Uh, sorry, Dale. I, sorry. I just see the letters IP next to one another. <laughs> I immediately think internet protocol. Yeah, exactly, yes. I know I need to get out more. You do, and yes. that fresh air thing you mentioned earlier, <laughs> I have no idea what it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's not scary. Um, the films start just before the Japanese invasion of uh, China in 1937, 35, charts the legend of Ip Man, a man who goes on to be the teacher and mentor of Bruce Lee. The choreography is standout and a really good film, assuming you can accept the legend of IP Man rather than the historical accuracy. It's on Netflix. I must have a, yes. I must have a look at it. Yeah, OK. Yes. I've been watching um, the excellent BBC adaptation of China Melville's The City and the City, a mixture of weird fiction and police procedural. Another one where I loved the book and now I'm enjoying the series. Uh, they've done some slight character changes from the book and I really, really like the, uh, the assistant detective girl she's really funny uh this weekend i'll be sitting down to watch the new netflix reboot of the 1960s favorite lost in space danger will robinson well just one thing on that because we, we spoke about this before we said that there was no dr smith in it but apparently there is a dr smith played by a woman parker posey Oh, Looks right. Okay. Really good. Looks okay. really good. Uh, on the movie side of things, I've just been wasting my time. Yeah, uh, hang on. You, you've been wasting your time since you went to see Isle of Dogs. <laughs> he just can't leave it alone, can he? Just He's like a dog not. with a bone. Oh, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> Never uh, let it lie. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I watched uh, Justice League, as Jeff had recommended it so highly. <laughs> S- still terrible. Uh, uh, watched another Jeff recommendation, Burnt about a chef trying to get his life back together. Should have been called Slop. Hold on, that's a Harvey Weinstein <laughs> film. That's oh, really I good. rest my case, right, OK. So, uh, not much to report this month. Um, uh, mainly listening to audiobooks this month. So, as this is at the flicks and not at the library, I'll stop here and move on to something new for this month. As a podcast extra, we are going to copy the Amazon model of customers who bought this item, also purchased this. So, we're going with, if you liked, the movie I just reviewed, then here are similar movies you might like to watch. For my reviewed movie, Ready Player One, I would recommend just about anything from the 80s, really. However, top of the list are the Back to the Future trilogy, The Last Starfighter, Tron, and outside of the 80s, the excellent The Iron Giant. Neil? 
For Isle of Dogs, I would recommend anything by Wes Anderson, especially the fantastic Mr. Fox, the Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom. And just to annoy Jeff, the Seven Samurai. You could have picked Kagamusha, that would have been worse. Okay, for A Quiet Place, I would recommend Jaws, Aliens, Night of the Living Dead, and if you want to go obscure, Panic in the Year Zero, a 1963 film starring Ray Milland and Gene Hagen about a family sort of caught in the wilderness following a nuclear war. Marvellous stuff. Okay, and if you have any comments on the show, then would you please email them to us at show at at theflicks.co.uk. As for next month... Neil will be reviewing Deadpool 2. Jeff will be finally reviewing Entebbe, unless it's moved again. And Graham will be reviewing Avengers Infinity Wars. Oh, my God. <laughs> you mean you're both reviewing superhero I'm films? I'm taking the day Seriously. off for it. Is there nothing else out there, or are you just trying to push me over the edge? The latter, the latter. definitely. <laughs> well, I can only follow that and get my sanity back with the quiz for the month. Something I know Neil is very excited about. Here is this month's question. In the history of the Oscars, only three films have won the top five awards. That's film, actor, actress, director and script. The question is quite simple. Name the three films which have achieved this accolade. OK, and I think that's it. So, gentlemen, I think I can safely announce that another At The Flicks is in the can. And it's good night from me. A bon nuit from me. And from me, goodbye and thanks for listening. Oh, and gentlemen, just one thing. After Jeff's incredible rant about Ikira Kurosawa, I think I've got the perfect tune to end this podcast with. A little song about Akira Kurosawa. <laughs>